Hello and welcome to the second episode of the new season of Facilitate Talks. For this episode, we have interrupted our planned episode plan to discuss the future of AAV following last week's FDA adcom focused on issues of toxicity. Unfortunately, I was actually unable to attend the meeting in full, but what did you make of the meeting as a whole, Anthony? I did attend the meeting uh, in full, um, thanks to uh, thanks to YouTube and the FDA's virtual meetings. And uh, this this was a much anticipated meeting. I think there was quite a bit of trepidation in the industry. Um, the FDA does not call public meetings of this duration with this focus uh, very often at all. Um, I, I think people have seen some comments I've already made in the press uh, that honestly, I considered the meeting overall to have been a missed opportunity and I was disappointed in the meeting. Um, on the other hand, there were some, you know, frankly outstanding, it was presentations. It was sort of like being the best ever preclinical and clinical AAV conference. And uh, I, you know, I felt I, I left the meeting 100% up to date on everything that could possibly go wrong with an AAV clinical or preclinical study. I'm not, I actually mean that sincerely in a good sense, but I think there's a lot of stuff that didn't get done uh, at the meeting um, that that could have. Well, while I may not have been able to attend the meeting, I was able to follow your Twitter coverage and I especially liked, honestly, the general demeanour of the meeting, in my honest opinion, was an academic further experiments are needed rather than a feeling of urgency because of patients suffering SUSARs or desperately unmet medical needs. Is that still your perception of the meeting or did day two bring anything new to the table? Um, it is still my real the feeling I got, you know, I sort of, being a failed academic myself, uh, I can I can testify that you know, all, all academic papers to me seem to end with the, the statement that you know, further work is needed, which translates to further grants need to be applied for. And I, I felt that was the overall, uh, that was the overall demeanor of the meeting. Would you like to introduce Nicole, Anthony? Yeah, it's a, it's a real pleasure to introduce Professor Nicole Polk from UCSF, uh, who's sitting just across the bay uh, that way, uh, from me. Uh, Nicole writes, uh, you know, I'm not even being sarcastic here for once, Nicole, you, you write uh, worthwhile commentary on bio-industrial matters from an academic uh, setting, uh, particularly in the field of AAV. Um, so welcome to, our, welcome to our podcast. It's a great time to have you. Uh, as the dust is settling on the uh, on the FDA adcom, Nicole. Yeah, stoked to be here. I think to start with Nicole, it would be great if we could uh, just start with any questions you might have had from or following last week's meeting. Yeah, I second Anthony. the The biggest thing I felt wanting at the end of this meeting was why don't we talk about any of the things that people are actually still kind of itchy about things like empty capsids and you got that sense at the end of the first day when the fda was allowed to ask questions back to the panelists and one of the first questions they asked was you know kind of how should we be feeling about empty capsids and how should we deal with the pushback that we're getting from companies so it's clearly an area where they need help and want help and want insights um and i don't think we gave that to them so i really wish we would have covered that um at more length um at more length in the adcom yeah, I think this, what it helped do, me do is, is start to parse out where these toxicities are coming 
in in the AAV field. I, I want to take a step back and um, because I, I, I I'm not old, but I've I've been on the planet quite a large number of years now, and uh, I, I started my career also just a few miles from here. Uh, one of the sort of iconic early small molecule drug development companies, Onyx Pharmaceuticals, which was founded by Frank McCormick, which who's yeah. just recently left your institution, Nicole, who's a very thoughtful man and a great character. And one of his most senior drug developers, uh, I remember talking to about one of the small molecules we were developing, and he said, oh, it's good news. We've got some adverse events in the mouse study. I said, what do you mean that's good news? He said, well, it, the drug's bioavailable. It's doing something, and it's doing something at a relevant dose. It may be causing enteric problems in the mice, uh, but that you know we, we've crossed the first hurdle. I'm really excited. Now, for the record, that drug became Nexavar, which is a billion-dollar cancer drug. Um, but I thought it was a very interesting. It really, it really turned on its head for me the way I look at adverse events, and it it seems a you know a sort of unnecessarily sort of cruel and provocative way to view them, but it certainly means that the drug is doing something and these drugs have, you know, amazing potency. So I'll just pause there and get you perhaps, Nicole, to reflect on the enormous power, literally potency power of AAVs. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> if you've been at any of these gene therapy meetings, ASGCT, ESGCT, BSGCT, and you, and you either attend the meetings or you watch YouTube videos afterwards, um, you know, we've all seen a video of, you know, pick a rare disease. We've seen a video of a child who, you know, had some high morbidity um, affliction that was, that was, you know, had been them and been with them for often since birth. Uh, and you see their pre-treatment video and you see their post-treatment video. And, you know, even the most hardened, you know, pathologist, you know, think of like the, <laughs> the person that never shows emotion, um, regardless in the audience and you watch these videos and everyone's tearing up because they're amazing. Um, so these things work, they have unbelievable potency and our job is to find that magic window where we can get the, the best for the best for the least. Right, so the magic window. So one of the, I think the elephants in the room, which was you know, very inadequately addressed in the adcom was you know, setting a dose ceiling. Yeah. The FDA you know, throwing down a red line and saying nothing above E14 VGs per kg. You yeah. don't even think about it. Uh, and that was, I think, just shouted down. Uh, I'd like to come on to why it was shouted down in a sec, but I'll first pause there and, and see, you, 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 saw, you heard that too, right? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think there's, I would be shocked beyond belief if, if in the coming days, weeks, and months, we saw a new guidance that, that gave a, a hard limit to, to an AAV dose. Um, I don't it expect to me. It seemed to me that half the reason people didn't want to give that limit was they were sort of hiding behind how difficult it is to quantify the viral genomes. So, so oh, yeah. to, to, you know, well, we can't measure it very well, so let's not bother sort of thing was the, was the, the impression I got there. I think there was kind of two things. There was simultaneously that, which was, you know, there's not two groups on the planet making AV in the exact same way. And it's, you know, incredibly difficult, not impossible, shouldn't use that word, incredibly difficult to get accurate titers of these things, A, uh, and B, there's no two groups using the exact same method to do the titering. And so it's almost impossible to compare between groups on what's one group's 1E13 BG per kg is not the same as another group's 1E13 BG per kg. So because of that, we can't make the comparisons anyways. So what's the point in giving an upper limit? Uh, so there was kind of that camp. But then there was also the camp of, you know, 
despite the fact that we have seen some some SAEs at some of these high doses, it's not every time we give um, we give that dose we see these things. And so it it might just be that um, we need to kind of go not go back to the drawing board, but understand a bit more about what are the underlying predispositions that make um, that make a child or make a patient more likely to be someone who has an SAE. And can we? Can we start to suss those out? I think it became clear with the with the uh, dentist trial that clearly underlying hepatobiliary um, um, damage, even if it's not active, even if it's not that you are actively experiencing a hepatobiliary effect, but you've had it recently or in the past, that that may be something that we need to start considering, considering, not demanding, but considering as um, a trial exclusion, at least for that moment. Um, yeah, no, I think I think you know that's just a work in progress. Is is accepted criteria for enrollment in the cl clinical trials, and you've got to gate out. Uh, if, if something's looking bad, you've got to gate out anyone who is even remotely under suspicion of, of being falling victim to that. But I just want to bind back to the whole quantitation thing because this really bugs me. Why doesn't this is not a rhetorical question? Even why doesn't the FDA tell the ATCC to run up some reference standard batches of each serotype of AAV, distribute them, and if you can't get your assay within half a log of those numbers, you know you, you can't submit your IND or your or your let alone a, a BLA. And what's what's so hard about that? Yeah, I think. <laughs> I know there is actually some efforts underway. It's not actually being done through ATCC. It's being done through NIST. Um, and they are trying to make some standards for AAV. I think the problem that comes down is AAV8 is not the same as, you know, another group's AAV8 where the promoter is different or the transgene is different. The length of the entire genome is different. There's more secondary structure in that genome, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's somewhat, not impossible, but it's, it's difficult to compare um, two wildly different genome, you know, single-stranded versus self-complementary, one with a lot of secondary structure, one with none, um, one that's completely packed full length, 4.7 KB versus one that's you know, under packaged and 3.1 KB. Um, so, you know, what's a standard that everyone can agree on? I think that's where the challenge comes and where NIST has been struggling. We've been doing this. We have a grant through the Somatic Cell Genome Engineering Consortium, and NIST is a part of that. And we're trying to make standards for the field, but boy, nobody can agree on what is a standard for a V that people can use for titering. So until we can come up with something to tell them that we want to, them to make, um, I think. I think isn't, that, isn't, that just, isn't that called assay validation? And isn't that what you're meant to do to file a BLA? And you, you validate an assay against a reference standard. And I, I, again, I, I, I'm sort of calling BS on this because if you can't buy it from NIST or uh, ATCC, then uh, when I was developing assays at therapeutics companies, you had to generate your own reference standard, no. you know, qualify it, send it to the FDA, and they would either bless it or they won't bless it. Uh, but I guess I'll, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll give up on that one. But the, the, the other elephant in the room, uh, I think, was uh, empty capsids. And we've seen presentations from the FDA where a CMC reviewer has said, look, this is an impurity. Impurities need specs. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pause there with that rather unprovocative comment. Yeah, I think as an academic, where I get where I get nervous isn't even the right word. Where I get um, curious is the fact that there is some 
there is some kind of competing, there's some competing literature out there. There is literature that says that empty capsids might be, not that they are, but that they might be a good thing because they can sop up like a sponge these pre-existing neutralizing antibodies against that particular capsid serotype so that more full packaged capsids can get to the target tissue to transduce. But then there's also literature that says that the more empty capsids that you have, uh, the less potent your vector is and that these might also be immunogenic because these are um, potentially not necessarily you know, perfectly formed capsids, et cetera, et cetera. And they might also have their own modifications on them uh, or be packaging non, non-desired genomes, right? So things like the host cell genome from which these viruses were made in. And so I think be, until we resolve the fact that there's competing literature, we're always gonna have a be at a bit of a, a headbutt on, well, do, MC, do empties matter? Right, I mean, I see it as analogous to dead cells in a cell therapy. Yeah. And um, I actually started going back through the literature and looking for the genesis of the FDA guidance on cell viability, uh, which progressed you know, quite slowly over a period of about a decade and eventually popped out with a guidance of 70% uh, for 70% viable cells. And that became a guidance which was you know, re- regarded as somewhat arbitrary yeah. And uh, many, but many exceptions were granted uh, for various reasons. I don't think anybody actually claimed that dead cells were a good thing in the way that people <laughs> might empty capsids uh, are a good thing. Uh, but you know, again, I, I, I spoke to the FDA on multiple occasions. Uh, I've spoke to Don Fink, who now works with Dark Horse, on multiple occasions because. I had cells coming in with viability of 72, 73, 74, and I was just really worried. I was selling too close to the wind, and if I a gut blew, I'd be failing a lot. And you know, we, if we showed safety and effectiveness of lots in the in the 60s, uh, and then we you know we spected at 60 percent, you know, by and large, the FDA would at least listen to arguments of that nature. So I think even if the FDA, you know, the horror of horrors, guided to you know, seventy percent full, full capsids as being the 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 desired you know by a viral viability, if you want to call, call coin that phrase, which I very much do because I think it's cute. Uh, then I think that I, I think that would be a good thing. And I think again, um, what I, what I don't understand is is why the FDA is not driving on this harder. Yeah. I don't understand why the FDA is not pushing hard. You know, a lot of the arguments we heard uh, at the end of last week are, well, there's different sorts of empty. You know, there's empty meaning there's no DNA. There's empty uh, meaning half empty. Uh, there's half full with the wrong DNA. You know, it's complicated. And I saw a lot of uh, you know, sort of hide the penny going on there, I felt. And I, I, I sort of miss the FDA coming down with a bit of a hammer here and saying, well, this is where it's going to be. And you, you have to sort out your assays uh, before you file. Yeah. Well, the thing for me is I'm, I'm definitely in camp. I think we should probably be limiting empties. What the exact cutoff is. I don't feel I know enough yet to, to put a number on. And so I imagine they don't either. Um, but I think in the next year we could like, if we made it an effort, like we could probably do, I mean, you know, if we, if we all buckled down and just did the experiments ourselves, like, you can you can find out like what is the percentage of empty upon which you start to see you know toxicity or yeah. you start to be dose limiting in terms of what volumes you could administer when you're doing small volumes like you're doing injections into the inner ear or into the eye etc where where yeah. volume is now an issue. Um, but for me, it's not like it's less 
is the empty this 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 incredibly dangerous and damaging thing it's more are we now getting far 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 too close to the you know too high of a total protein bolus dose um, by by allowing large numbers of empties um, you know to this day I don't know and I would love to know what was the empty percentage in the lots that you know the the kids in in that identity I can't trial. believe we don't know that I can't believe that an industry consortium isn't sharing these data it can even be shared uh, you know be shared confidentially within within the consortium the, the FDA could either participate or not participate um, in that co consortium I, I can't believe we don't know basic things like that I think the thing that I the thing that I well, first, let's just try and kill the subject of uh, of em em empty capsids. You know, I'll, I'll throw down some more slightly provocative statements for you to respond to. I'll tell you one thing that an empty capsid is not doing, and that's fixing the disease. Yeah, we can 100% agree on that. <laughs> uh, you know, everyone's read Fraser Wright's article on uh, antibody sinks. I don't know. I've thought about that long and hard over, over many Gin and tonics, and I and I still feel that the the empty capsids must be sinking just as as many antibodies as the full capsids. Yeah, I can't so see a reason why they wouldn't be more preferential. Yeah, so I don't really see the issue there, and I I I, I, I like to dig a little bit further to get your thoughts on one you know another sort of technical issue before perhaps we broaden out in the second half of this conversation um, as to the the the. So the capsid-related toxicities, which are primarily you know, inflammation or uh, immunologically related, um, and there are adverse events associated with the contents of the capsid, the DNA. Um, I think it's it's amazing to reflect that you know we're, everyone's using these mega promoters like CMV. Uh, I, I think uh, for two reasons: they're small and they're powerful, and you know, more is better. So we're sending in a gene, we're sending an open reading frame yeah. driven by a promoter, which is completely inappropriate. Yeah. And it's blasting on all cylinders, this gene product, which might be extraordinarily subtly regulated, e e even if it were able to be only delivered to the cell in which it should be expressed. Yeah. Uh, you know, are we just stupid to think that anything will work under those circumstances? I think this is one of those classic, like, you know, it's a snowflake where, you know, it's each disease, each, each payload, each gene therapy product, each kid, each patient, um, each tissue is going to be different. And I think for certain tissues and certain indications, certain diseases and certain patients, you know, these, these large, ubiquitous, strong promoters are going to be perfectly fine. But in other instances, we are probably going to need to start to use, um, promoters where we can regulate and control both temporally, but also in terms of strength. Um, um, you know, how much, how much expression we're getting and when and where um, in the future as we move, particularly beyond kind of some of these really low hanging fruit monogenic diseases where we just like just blast as much of the gene as possible and it's probably going to be therapeutic versus when we start to get more to more complex diseases that are multi-tissue, multi-cell, um, you know, more complex regulation, dominant disorders, um, all kinds of kind of the next wave of indications that we're going to go after. Um, I think this, this first iteration probably isn't going to, to play nicely in those systems. So um, I, I've spoken to a few other journalists over the last few days, over the weekend, and one, one of the comments was, 
you know, this has just been a year of bad news for gene therapy. Uh, yeah. You know, what, what, what do we need to do to, to, to fix it? Uh, and I think that the, what the worry is, is that the sort of drip feed of endless SAEs and deaths in these trials is ultimately just going to weigh on the field and you weigh on investments in the field. Um, how close do you think we are to that threshold? I don't think we're that close, um, honestly. Um, but I, I understand the sentiment. Um, I, I agree. But I... <laughs> Part of this is, you know, it's it's a numbers game. I feel like, um, you know, yes, probably once a month we've been hearing like a pretty gnarly piece of news about a clinical hold, a CRL, um, an SAE, something. Um, but in reality, if you if you had access to all of the data, like every single day somewhere in the world, there is a child being infused with an AAV gene product and it saved their life. You're not going to hear about it because we don't do a press release for like ninth child dosed. We might do a press release for the first child being dosed. And we do a press release when you get your IND accepted or when you get your big fundraise, but we don't do a press release for the ninth successfully infused child. You're so right. Good, because each one of those is amazing. Yeah. 1500 planes landed safely at JFK airport. Not, like not every a single day, there's a kid who was probably going to die in the next couple of months who got infused with an Absolutely, I'm not exaggerating in the slightest, life-saving gene therapy product, and you didn't hear about it. Yep. But you do hear about each one of the SAEs or the holds or all of these things. So, you know, not to bash the media because we're all, like, it's not just, you know, the, the biotech media. media. It's also academic press departments and, and everybody. We all contribute to this. We only seem to report, um, you know, some of this negative news and, and give it the blitz treatment, right, where you really get it big. Um, but not, you know, ninth successfully treated child. Um, so no, I think the whole, there is more good news than bad news. You just don't talk about it. <laughs> the whole aid organization who is, is, you know, sponsoring these podcasts, you know, is, is a cup half full organization and we all want the field to work, obviously. But it, it is, it, you're absolutely right, Nicole. Thank you for that reminder. It's, it's pretty easy to get dragged down by the, the sort of doom and gloom. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the biotech industry, um, through the, the Gelsinger era. I think you, you can't really have a podcast like this without remembering Jesse Gelsinger. Uh, but that was at a time where, you know, almost literally, all, almost, but not quite literally, uh, a single death in a trial brought down the field and gene therapy went into the wilderness for a full decade. Um, there were also some HTLV-induced leukemias going on in the Paris trials at the same time. There were actually some AAV detection in the germline of patients going on at the time. So it wasn't all about uh, Gelsinger. Uh, but I think um, I think we all agree now that the, the field has critical mass that, well, obviously the field has critical mass that uh, that single deaths or SAEs, you know, tragic though they are, um, are, are smaller than the big picture. Um, well, and, and beyond that too, like there's, it takes so much momentum to get a brand new field like going. Um, so, you know, I, I have nothing but, but love and hope um, for all of the new technologies that are coming online. I hear, you know, there's a new nature biotech paper every day from a big lab at, you know, MIT, Whitehead, Harvard, you know, pick one of these universities and bless their hearts uh, and bless those PR departments. But, 
you know, each one of these is not a breakthrough that's going to replace A, B tomorrow. I keep hearing that. Is A, B dead? Are we about to replace it? No, (laughs) not even close. You will be hearing about A, B until you die because it takes 20 years to get all of the supportive and like kind of boring and you don't hear about it. Infrastructure and things around supporting a new technology so that you have available antibodies and kits and reagents and consumables and CDMOs and vendors and all these people who can support this new developing technology. So like, I'm stoked for everybody and their new things coming up, but like, you're gonna need 15 years to get to where we are today. Um, And I hope you get to where we are today because we need as many shots on goal as possible to start attacking all of these different diseases. But like, AV has a momentum that you can't stop that train. Um, One of the themes of this podcast, Nicole, is, is, is I, I like to draw the parallel between cell and gene therapy development and monoclonals development. Yeah, okay. Exactly. And, you know, a, a fact that we often reference is that Herceptin, you know, one of the most amazing drugs in history, in 1998 was supply chain, it was a supply chain constrained launch. They could not make enough Herceptin to treat all of the breast cancer patients for whom they were, who were eligible yeah. for it. So one of the questions we often ask ourselves is, you know, what what year is it today in in, in cell and gene that it that it oh, was? What Herceptin year is it for AV? Yeah, I think it's around somewhere in the late nineties. I think. Yeah, it's early. Um, it's right? early. Because Herceptin was sort of the first became the first blockbuster monoclonal, uh, and that was approved in ninety eight. So when when do you think the first blockbuster AAV will be approved? Oh goodness! I think it depends on how you define blockbuster. If it's you know what has the potential to break markets, hemophilia. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess that would be better or for worse, hemophilia. We're going to have conversations when that one goes live. Um, We we almost had those conversations a few months ago, but didn't quite, unfortunately. Uh, So Um, I guess when uh, when Biomarin files, we'll ask Christina about that in the uh, in the Badoofa podcast at the end. Georgie. Um, okay, so so Biomarin's a few years out, so I guess it's 1996, where I had a lot more hair and was considerably more athletic. Um, <laughs> I so, could certainly run faster. <laughs> uh, so, you know, another another journalistic comment was actually saying, you know, I have, uh, it, the journalist said to me, I've got an inbox full of emails from almost every AAV chief executive on the planet Jealous. Uh, saying, I, I really wish, um, I, I really wish the FDA would sort of throw down some guidance here. We, we, we want it, but uh, I'm not going to stick my neck out and be the one to, uh, to request it. Um, what, what do you think about that? Do you, do you think that's the case or are they just sort of uh, pretending to want it? I think it's partly true. Uh, it might be like, you know, an 80% truth uh, that you say over a drink uh, and 20% of it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a lie. Um, no, I think it's probably true because I mean, what, remember, remember back just a few years when there was no guidance from the FDA and how people were just pulling their hair out at every meeting that you went to just, we need guidance and they were just hammering the FDA. Right. And now we have it. And now, now it's, you know, as long as you follow it, which not everybody does, but as long as you follow that guidance, right? Like, you know, I mean, you guys do this at Dark Horse, like just follow the guidance and nine times out of 10, you're gonna get through your path. What I think might happen, like my prediction 
if there were going to be a new guidance after last week's meeting, or not even a new guidance, but a new, a new rule, a new thing, um, I think there should be, and there shouldn't be too much pushback to this, um, I don't think there should be a limit on a total dose, vector genome containing or empty per se, since we don't know enough about what that limit should be when it comes to empties. I do think, even though it's the boring academic answer, I do think we need a bit more research there. But <laughs> I think they could ask, and I would be fine vocally, publicly supporting, that you must report it. Moving forward, when you have your clinicaltrials.gov page about your trial, you must report what your full and empties are. There's no limit, but you have to report it. So that way we can start to track, right? That shouldn't be too proprietary. We don't need to know the, the genomic yeah. sequence of your payload, et cetera, et cetera, but just report what your full and empties are. So that way we can start to track and see, is there a correlation between this particular type of SAE and preparations that have above this particular threshold of empties that we can start to aggregate this data publicly. Um, and I imagine there would be pushback to that, but I don't think there should be too much um, scientifically pushback to that. Um, That's I really interesting. That. Yeah, I'd be really interested uh, to, you know, hopefully we're, we're talking to Peter Marks on, uh, in a subsequent uh, episode of this, and that's something I'll, I'll, I'll ask Peter. I'm not sure there's exactly a precedent, because basically, I suppose what you're asking for there, Nicole, is you're basically asking for people to release uh, certificates of analysis for each lot of drug. Uh, they could be partially redacted, Um So you, 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 you know, and the, and the FDA could allow you to redact, you know, whatever you, whatever. But I think, you know, the full and the empty, or the ratio, percentage, uh, that, that's, you know, that's a really interesting. Uh, but there's a few things, right, that shouldn't be proprietary, right? It's not the sequence. You don't yeah. have to name your capsid at your phase. By phase three, it's going to be out. But in your phase one, maybe you don't have to publicly name your capsid or the promoter that you're using. I wish folks would, but I understand why perhaps they might not want to at that stage. Um, but just some of these key, key parameters that aren't yeah. proprietary, I wish folks would report. Um, and if it wasn't public on clinicaltrials.gov, at least to some kind of consortia of, you know, inner groups who have all bought in, um, you know, yeah. whether that's ASGCT or, or bio or R or, you know, something else. Um, if just somehow we were able to get that data as scientists and physicians um, so that we could start to draw, you know, those meta studies and, and try to suss yeah. this out. I think that's a great idea. And something that and you, you say that you know, we, we tell people to follow guidances, we certainly do. But we also remind people that guidances are exactly what you think they are. They're guidances. Yeah. It's not a it's not a it's not carved in stone. Yeah. And you know, one of the people, uh, you know, Judy Weisinger, who's an ex FDA senior ex FDA staffer who trained me in how to interact with the FDA, said, you know, uh, what we say in inside Silver Springs, Maryland is in God we trust all others must bring data. And I think that that's the answer, that if you want to, if you want a, a, a ticket for an exception to a guidance, all you have to do is bring data. Yeah, and FDA has want... been very, very willing to let people have exceptions. Just show us the data that says that it still works, it's still safe, and, yeah. you know, we'll talk. Yeah, FDA knows. 70% cell viability, there's nothing magical about it. It's not that 69% viable cells are, are lethal, yeah. okay? Uh, and if, if that's the number that you, you want to justify, they, they'll I'll speak from personal experience. I'll absolutely listen to you. So guidances are only guidances. They're not that scary, but they're so useful. 
Oh yeah, they'll yeah. still kind of, you know, they'll set your ship on the right course. So in general, you should probably try to like stay within the bounds. Yeah. Uh, have really good reason if you want to deviate. I, I believe the chief executives, sorry, I, I believe the chief executives. I think there is a thirst for guidance. And um, as I've said, you know, publicly elsewhere, it's, it's a source of some frustration. Uh, and maybe the FDA will surprise us. Maybe they're just keeping their cards close to their chests and they will issue the, you know, the mother of all guidances in a few months' time. And I, I would be delighted to be. I mean, everyone wants to know in advance what the expectation is, right? Like, is it 56 release assays or is it 58? Just tell us. We'll do it's them. Be better. We it's will budget be better. for them. We will do them, but just tell us what they are. <laughs> on hold, off hold, on hold again, yeah. off hold again. We That's can't awful. handle these press releases where you know we've got to say we're on hold for something that would have only taken us two weeks to do if you just told us you wanted it. So just tell us you want it. We'll give it to you up front. Just tell us. Yeah. So I think people do want guidance. Um, I, I agree. So stepping back, taking another step back, another thing we reference often is what we we call the Gottlieb projections of how many uh, BLAs uh, are going to be uh, authorized in, in you know, five, 10 years time. And the number I think is in, in, in 2025, uh, Scott was predicting there would be 10 to 20 uh, cell and gene therapy BLAs uh, approved per year. Um, looking like a bit of a tall order yep. uh, at the moment. Uh, so what do we need? What are the top you know, few things we need for AAV to and you can, you're welcome to talk outside of AAV as well uh, for cell and gene therapies, including AAV, to start to head toward that 10 to 20 commercial approvals a year number within the next four years. I mean, I think we're on track in terms of numbers of programs in the pipeline. Like, oh gosh, we're so on track. Um, I think it's more, can we get past kind of what we were just talking about, these, these big delays, these six-month, one-year delays that keep coming from, from, from clinical holds. Um, or, or folks unable to, to finance kind of that, that last phase. It's not necessarily hard to get 30 million to do your first phase one, but it, it becomes harder to raise those larger bu buckets of money um, to really push things towards commercial. So um, I think we've got to, and I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if it's just not rushing so much up front. We're all so just, you know, we're like kids in a candy store and, and getting these little crack highs. Um, it's just like as fast as possible. It's the moment you get the money, go, 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 go. It's like, maybe we shouldn't be rewarding folks for how quickly can you get to IND? Just go. Yeah. Like, don't change anything about your process. Don't change anything about your plasma. Don't change anything about how you want to set this up. Don't think about what the right inclusion exclusion criteria are. Don't do any more preclinical research. Just go. You know, it's like this rocket ship mentality that, you know, guilty. We have this here in Silicon Valley from the tech space. It's just, you know, go, go, go. And I feel like we, it might've been one of those, you shot yourself in the foot, but didn't realize it till six years later where it might be that if we slow down a bit, not, ex you know, not crazy, you're not going to, you know, upset all your investors and they're going to pull out and not fund your B. Um, but just let's slow down a bit more at the very beginning and really make sure our deck is in order um, and that we are pushing forward the best possible construct that has been optimized 10 ways to Sunday in whatever that means that's relevant for you and your program and that you've got everything set up so that what you're pushing forward is the best possible thing that you can with today's technology. Like, obviously, you know, there's a new technology tomorrow that you can't implement because, you know, you can't implement everything once you get this 
this process set in stone, but with existing data, existing literature, existing knowledge, let's make sure we're pushing forward the best possible version that we can and then hit the gas and just accelerate like crazy and don't skip that, you know, two, three, four, five, six months phase up front because, oh boy, are you going to pay for it later when they're like, oh, you didn't have preclinical data to support this. We want you to go back to the beginning and redo those studies or, oh, we're going to put you on clinical hold for X, Y, Z reason because you didn't have enough data in your packet to support this. And we're going to want additional non-human primate studies to support this. And you're like, oh my God, this is going to be at least a year. Um, so I feel it's one of those pennywise pound foolish. You might need to ironically slow down a bit up front and it will actually save you time on the back end. And then if we can save all those big chunks of time on the back end, then we can. I mean, there's like 300 things in the pipeline or something right now. So we can clearly do the, the 10 to 20 a year um, in a few years. I think it'll slow down a smidge because of COVID that really kind of screwed with all of us. Um, but, you know, just add another two years on the back end of that. Um, I think by 2027, it's not unreasonable that we would be at 10 to 20, particularly if we combine cell and gene therapies together. I think we yeah. can't. There are so few examples of this in, in history, in the history of biotech, but one very compelling one is Junior Therapeutics. Their lead product was JCAR-15, a CAR T cell, and they ran into a, a rash of SAEs and deaths in their trials. Uh, there was a lot of consternation at the time, and they canned the JCAR-15 product, and they said, we are taking a step back and we're moving forward JCAR-17. And at the time, I remember saying people saying, realistically, that's the end of Juno. I even heard people say that's the end of CAR-T, yeah. but they, they retrenched, moved JCAR-17 forward. JCAR-17 was approved as Lysacel this year, yeah. and you had a couple of stumbles before the BLA, which is another story, but uh, you know, Juno was, if you're counting, Juno was acquired by Celgene for $8 billion, and Celgene was acquired for Bristol for a quadzillion dollars, and, uh, and now it's a, you know, Lysacel is the scripts being written for Lysacel every day in the clinic. Uh, and it's a, it's a much safer and probably more effective drug than, than JCAR-15 would ever have been. So I really uh, respect the people at Juno back in those days, you know, Mark Bonihadi and the research people in Carl Juno's company then, uh, who took that you know, two-year timeout. Um, in the 90s, when the FDA asked Genentech for more data, and the, the data took two years to generate. You know, Genentech, fortunately, was well enough capitalized at that time to say, fine, and they did it. And you know, last time I checked, you know, Genentech had done fairly well in the long run as well. And I think there is enough capital in the field now, again, to draw the parallel to your cell and gene in the 90s from the, in the Gelsinger era, that it wasn't the capital. You know, going back for two years to generate more data, data just wasn't an option then. Today it is an option. I, I completely agree with you. I wish more people would pull a Juno and, and and take the time and then come back with their with their lysosel approval, which is stronger than uh, 15 ever would have been. I just think with that sentiment, that's probably a really great place for us to wrap up. Um, before we do lose you, Nicole, Anthony, um, I believe you have a couple of additional questions. So this is the time when we get the Padufa forecast uh, from Christina Fuentes, uh, who's one of our consultants who monitors cell and gene therapy drug approvals. And uh, it, it's interesting to me that you know, Christina has recently emerged from academia where she completed a PhD, a large part of which was on AAV. You know, if you look back 
two years, Christina, did you even, uh, yeah, uh, did you even, uh, two years ago, would you even have noticed that this FDA meeting was happening that we're all so ginned up about? To be honest, no, I don't think so. I think um, in the academic world, at least for my graduate uh, work, I focused a lot on understanding what are the hard problems and what is the potential of the field, I think was a lot more focused on being able to understand are these concepts even possible. And I think now coming into the consulting realm and working in industry, you see, okay, how do we take these concepts and make them a reality? And I think, you know, I could do several PhDs alone on this. And I think Nicole, you know, I'm fangirling over here because she does a (laughs) lot of amazing work um, at that interface in academia, but looking at some of these real world problems that I think translate really well to what's going on right now. What's it like at the interface, Nicole? There are not enough people there, in my opinion. Oh, gosh. Um, you're not always popular. I can tell you that. Um, you know, the, the really fundamental basic biologists who are interested in the virology of this, of this really interesting non-pathogenic DNA virus, like they're cool with anything that you find because they're just, you know, hungry for data and ideas and, and interesting tidbits. But, oh, golly, when you publish a paper that, you know, might, ex- uh, might influence someone's market share, who's a public company, like, oh, golly, do I get some good emails? Um, so, you know, you've got to have thick rhino skin to to kind of play in both ponds where you know you you are at this interface I and mean, we work on kind of genomics proteomics epigenomics of av both at the fundamental level and you know the how this influences the translation of these things and and yeah it can be uh it can be super exciting to be kind of at the, the cutting edge uh, of these technologies and applying them in this really important and unique way, but but you're not always super popular, so you got to be uh, you got to be willing to take the heat. I, I've never I've never been popular in my life. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know it, but uh, look, Nicole, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, will you come back to and talk to us if uh, if the health reasons over and a guidance is issued? Oh, I promise. I promise. <laughs> you give me one day's notice, I'll talk to you any time of day about AV. Uh, right. You can breathe it. I, I think it was interesting that before the ad com started on YouTube, there were you know, ticking up from 900 to 1,000 to 1,100 people waiting for the start of the call. Um, that, if I remember right, is around about a tenth as many who are watching the Pfizer ad com for uh, approval of the first coronavirus vaccine. Frankly, I think it's amazing if a tenth as many people watch this FDA adcom on AAV as watch the coronavirus vaccine adcom. That's an amazingly high attendance. Yes, and certainly. And I know people who weren't able to attend live and they downloaded and watched it later. So I bet that number is upwards of that. And I think that just speaks to how much anticipation there was for this meeting and for getting feedback from the FDA regarding um, AV. I'll say this out loud and I'll say it in public. I I hope that the FDA does provide some guidance to the field. I'm not even necessarily asking for a guidance document or a draft guidance document, but I feel there is a genuine thirst in the field shown by the YouTube viewership and the, the, the conversations I've had over the weekend since the ADCOM 
you know, FDA, there's a real thirst for guidance with a small G here. And I hope it's forthcoming from uh, you or from other regulators around the world. Do we need another Because meeting? ultimately that's, you know, Christina, that's what gives us Badoofa dates. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you, what, what is the impact of not, not to totally blame on the FDA here, but if, if lack of guidance or, or, you know, a shortage of guidance is inhibiting drug development, how does that knock on in the AAV field? Uh, to dates. So in the last year, when you look at upcoming dates, the AAV gene therapy side is looking quite grim. There have been several delays in BLA slip submissions. And while some of that is due to COVID-19, the pandemic, um, we've also seen delays from clinical holds. Oftentimes, this is related to SAEs that have occurred in the clinical trials, um, and we see this also being dependent, dose dependent, in a dose dependent manner. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, I think the Biomarin was sort of the big shocker, and, and Biomarin had, uh, you know, frankly, more bad news uh, the, the Monday after the AdCom meeting uh, for another clinical indication as well. Although, as Nicole pointed out in the in the in the podcast. Um, the, the hemophilia indication is probably the one uh, we really have our eyes on for, you know, an accepted uh, licensure application and a PDUFA date because that's the first real blockbuster we might see from the AAV field. So I also wanted to bring up Solid Biosciences and their lead product for DMD. Now we, as you may recall, uh, saw Solid Solid Biosciences having a clinical hold on their product. Yes. Now their hold was lifted and as part of their action to address FDA's questions related to their program clinical hold, they reduce the amount of empty capsids in the product. So I think this is highly relevant to the discussion earlier. What is the impact of empty capsids and why don't we set a spec now? Wouldn't we want to have less is better, especially for these programs that are early on in their manufacturing process? We know that as you get later into phase development, it's much harder to switch your manufacturing process. So why not set these high standards now um, so that in the long term, we are benefiting these programs that um, are addressing a diverse set of indications with no treatments to date? I can't help but remind people that Solid Biosciences is the company that Jim Wilson resigned from the board of in in 2019, I I believe, uh, with some concerns he had about toxicity of the products. And uh, that is a spectacularly relevant example, Christina. Uh, I think it really speaks to a lot of the suggestions that Nicole had about at least, you know, reporting levels of empties and the methods used to make that determination. Really interesting. So let's get this straight. They not necessarily implying cause and effect. They reduced the empties and they got off hold. Yes. Pretty interesting. 
Thank you, Christina. I think we may have possibly over-anticipated what the outcome of last week's meeting may have meant for AAV, and I think I certainly bought into the hype. Um, but today, for this episode, Anthony, do you think we answered our question, does AAV have a long-term future? Yes, I mean, absolutely we did. And, and you know, Nicole made the, the, the critical comment that Nicole made is the, is the one about, you know, uh, every every week a kid is treated with a gene therapy uh, successfully and nobody cares. Mm. Um, absolutely, there's a future. It, it's a stacked pipeline. You know, at the end of the day, yeah, we've got to sort out some stuff about, uh, about SAEs, about, you know, how high dose can you go and uh, your clinicians always want to put more drug into patients for the simple reason that they think it's more likely to work and you're always you know skating near the edge of the the maximum tolerated dose or the maximum feasible dose that's been the case since the dawn of drug development there's nothing in the big picture there's nothing new happening you know the fda is fretting about saes and wondering what to do about them. Industry is trying to push things forward and uh, you know, other, other elements are trying to hold things back uh, in a judicious manner. Patient advocacy groups are, you know, are impatient uh, as they should be. Uh, so are investors. And, and, and it's a bit of a seesaw. It's a bit of a seesaw experience being in drug development. I think you know, big picture, normal. Situation normal, okay. Uh, I think high dose AAB isn't going anywhere, uh, other than a place where it's a little bit better regulated, a little bit safer, and it's still a highly effective frontier of medicine. Excellent, thank you. Well, thank you also for joining us for this episode of Facilitate Talks. Make sure you join us for the next episode where we will actually be discussing the financial landscape for advanced therapy companies, pitching private equity against strategics. Remember, you can watch all of our podcasts on demand on the Facilitate website, or you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. You can also follow both Facilitate and Dark Horse Consulting on LinkedIn and Twitter. But that is all from us today. We look forward to seeing you for the next one. Bye.